Section 17 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by TJP1421. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 17. Daniel Webster. There is a story told of his going to a county fair with his brother Ezekiel, which shows the characters of these brothers better than a chapter. The father had given each lad a dollar to spend. When the boys got home, Daniel was in gay spirits, and Ezekiel was depressed. "'Well, Dan,' said the father, "'did you spend your money?' "'Of course I did,' replied Daniel. "'And Zeke, what did you do with your dollar?' "'Loaned it to Dan,' replied Ezekiel." But there was a fine bond of affection between these two. Ezekiel was two years older, and, unfortunately for himself, was strong and well. He was very early set to work, and I cannot find that the thoughts of giving him an education ever occurred to his parents until after Daniel had graduated at Dartmouth, and Dan and Zeke themselves then forced the issue. In stature they were the same size, both were tall, finely formed, and in youth slender. As they grew older, they grew stouter, and the personal presence of each was very imposing. Ezekiel was of light complexion and ruddy. Daniel was very dark and sallow. I have met several men who knew them both, and the best opinions is that Ezekiel was the stronger of the two, mentally and morally. Daniel was not a student, while well, Ezekiel was, and as a counselor Ezekiel was the safer man. Up to the very week of Ezekiel's death, Daniel advised with him on all his important affairs. When Ezekiel fell dead in the courtroom at Concord, and the news was carried to his brother, it was a blow that affected him more than the loss of wife or child. His friend and counselor, the one man in life upon whom he leaned, was gone, and over his own great crag-like face came that look of sorrow which death only removed. But care and grief became this giant, as they do all who are great enough to bear them. It was two years after his brother's death that he made the speech which is his masterpiece, and while the applause was ringing in his ears, he turned to Judge Story and said, Oh, if Zeke were only here! Who is there who cannot sympathize with that groan? We work for others, and to win the applause of senates or nations, and not be able to know that someone is glad, takes all the sweetness out of victory. When I sing well, I want you to meet me in the wings of the stage and take me in your aims, kiss my cheek, and whisper it was all right. When Patty wrote this to her lover, she voiced the universal need of a someone who understands, to share the triumph of good work well done. The nostalgia of life never seems so bitter as after moments of success. Then comes creeping in the thought that he who would have glorified in this knowing all the years of struggle and deprivations that made it impossible, is sleeping his long sleep. In that speech of January 26, 1830, Webster reached high watermark. On that performance, more than any other rests his fame. He was 48 years old then. All the years of his career he had been getting ready for that address. It was on the one theme that he loved, on the theme he had studied most, on the only theme upon which he ever spoke well, the greatness, the grandeur and the possibilities of America. 
he spoke for four hours, and in his works the speech occupies seventy close pages. He was at the zenith of his physical and intellectual power, and that is as good as a place as any to stop and view the man. On the account of his proud carriage, and the fine poise of his massive head, he gave the impression of being a very large man, but he was just five feet ten, and weighed a little less than two hundred. His manner was grave, deliberate and dignified, and his sturdy face, furrowed with lines of sorrow, made a profound impression upon all before he had spoken a word. He had arrived at an age when the hot desire to succeed had passed, for no man can attain the highest success until he has reached a point where he does not care for it. In oratory, the personal desire for victory must be obliterated, or the hearer will never award the palm. Hayne was a very bright and able speaker. He had argued the right of a state to dissent from, or nullify, a law passed by the House of Representatives and Senate, making such law inoperative within its borders. His claim was that the framers of the Constitution did not expect or intend that a law could be passed that was binding on a state when the people of that state did not wish it so. Mr. Hayne had the best end of the argument, and the opinion is now general among jurists that his logic was right and just, and that those who thought otherwise were wrong. New England had practically nullified United States law in 1812. The Hartford Convention of 1814 had declared the right. Josiah Quincy had advocated the privilege of any state to nullify an obnoxious law, quite as a matter of course. The framers of the Constitution had merely said that we had better hang together, not that we must. But with the years had come a feeling that the nation's life was unsafe if any state should pull away. Once on the plains of Colorado, I was with a party when there was danger of an attack from Indians. Two of the party wished to go back, but the leader drew his revolver and threatened to shoot the first man who tried to seek safety. We must hang together or hang separately. Logically, each man had the right to secede and go off on his own account, but expediency made a law and we declared that any man who tried to leave did so at his peril. To Webster was given the task of putting a new construction on the Constitution and to make of the Constitution a law instead of a mere compact. Webster's speech was not an argument, it was a plea, and so mightily did he point out the dangers of separation, review the splendid past, and prophesy the greatness of the future, a future that could only be ours through absolute union and loyalty to the good of the whole, that he won his case. After that speech, if Calhoun had allowed South Carolina to nullify a United States law, President Jackson would have made good his threat and hanged both him and Hayne on one tree, and the people would have approved the act. But Webster did not get the case quashed. He only got a postponement. In 1860, South Carolina moved the case again. She opened the argument in another way this time, and a million lives were required and millions upon millions in treasure expended to put a construction on the Constitution that the framers did not intend, but which was necessary in order that the nation might exist. In the Battle of Bull Run, almost the first battle of the war, fell Colonel Fletcher Webster, the only surviving son of Daniel Webster, and with him died the name and race. The cunning of Webster's intellect was not creative, in his argument there is little ingenuity, 
but he had the power of taking an old truth and presenting it in a way that moved men to tears. When aroused, all he knew was within his reach. He had the faculty of getting all his goods in the front window, and he himself confessed that he often pushed out a masked battery when behind there was not a single gun. Under the spell of the orator, an audience becomes of one mind. The dullest intellect is more alert than usual, and the most discerning a little less so. Cheap wit will then often pass for brilliancy and platitude for wisdom. We roar over the jokes we have known since childhood, and cry, Hear, hear, when the great man with upraised hands and fire in his glance declares that twice two is four. Oratory is hypnotism, practiced on a large scale. Through oratory, ideas are acquired by induction. Webster was a lawyer, and he was not above resorting to any trick or device that could move the emotions or passions of judge and jury to a prejudice favorable to his side. This was very clearly brought out when he undertook to break the will of Stephen Girard. Girard was a free thinker, and in leaving money to found a college, devised that no preacher or priest should have anything to do with its management. The question at issue was, is a bequest for founding a college a charitable bequest? If so, then the will must stand. But if the bequest was merely a scheme to deprive the legal heirs of their rights, diverting the funds from them for whimsical and personal reasons, then the will should be broken. Mr. Webster made the plea that there was only one kind of charity, namely Christian charity. Gerard was not a Christian, for he had publicly affronted the Christian religion by providing that no minister should teach in his school. Mr. Webster spoke for three hours with many fine bursts of tearful eloquence in support of the Christian faith, reviewing its triumphs and denouncing its foes. The argument was carried outside of the realm of law into the domain of passion and prejudice. The court took time for the tumult to subside, and then, very quietly, decided against Webster, sustaining the will. The college building was erected and stands today, the finest specimen of purely Greek architecture in America, and the good that Girard College has done and is now doing is the priceless heritage of our entire country. One of Webster's first greatest speeches was before the United States Supreme Court in the Dartmouth College case. Here he defended the cause of education with that grave and wonderful weight of argument of which he was master. In the Girard College case, 18 years after, he reversed his logic and touched with rare skill on the dangers of a too liberal education. No man now is quite so daring as to claim that Webster was a Christian. Neither was he a freethinker. He inherited his religious views from his parents and never considered them enough to change. He simply viewed religion as a part of the fabric of government, giving sturdiness and safety to established order. His own spiritual acreage was left absolutely untilled. His services were for sale, and so plastic were his convictions that once having espoused a cause, he was sure it was right. Doubtless it is self-interest, as Herbert Spencer says, that makes the world go round. And thus does sincerity of belief resolve itself into which side will pay most. This question being settled, reasons are as plentiful as blackberries and are supplied in quantities proportionate in size to the retainer. John Randolph once touched the quick by saying, If Daniel Webster was employed on a case and he had partially lost faith in it, his belief in his client's rights could always be refreshed and his zeal renewed by a check. Webster had every possible qualification that is required to make the great orator. All those who heard him speak 
when telling of it, begin by relating how he looked. He worked the dignity and impressiveness of his Jove-like presence to its furthest limit, and when, once thoroughly awake, was in possession of his entire armament. No other American has been able to speak with a like degree of effectiveness, and his name deserves to rank and will rank with the names of Burke, Chatham, Sheridan, and Pitt. The case has been tried, the verdict is in, and recorded on the pages of history. There can be no retrial, for Webster is dead, and his power died thirty years before his form was laid to rest at Marshfield by the side of his children and the wife of his youth. Oratory is the lowest of the sublime arts. The extent of its influence will ever be a vexed question. Its result depends on the mood and temperament of the hearer. But there are men who are not ripe for treason and conspiracy, to whom even music makes small appeal. Yet music can be recorded, and trusted to an interpreter yet unborn, and lodge its appeal with posterity. Literature never dies. It dedicates itself to time, for the printed page is reproduced ten thousand times ten thousand times, and besides, lives as did the Homeric poems, passed on from generation to generation by word of mouth. Where every book containing Shakespeare's plays burned this night, tomorrow they could be rewritten by those who know their every word. With the passing years, the painter's colors fade. Time rots his canvas. The marble is dragged from its pedestal and exists in fragments from which we resurrect a nation's life. But oratory dies on the air and exists only as a memory in the minds of those who cannot translate and then as hearsay. So much for the art itself, but the influence of that art is another thing. He who influences the beliefs and opinions of men influences all other men that live after. For influence, like matter, cannot be destroyed. In many ways, Webster lacked the inward steadfastness that his face and frame betokened. But on one theme, he was sound to the inmost core. He believed in America's greatness and the grandeur of America's mission. Into the minds of countless men, he infused his own splendid patriotism. From his first speech at Hanover, when 18 years old, to his last, when nearly 70, he fired the hearts of men with the love of native land, and how much the growing greatness of our country is due to the magic of his words, and the eloquence of his inspired presence, no man can compute. The passion of Webster's life is well mirrored in that burning passage. When mine eyes shall be turned to behold for the last time the sun in heaven, may I not see him shining on the broken and dishonored fragments of a once glorious union, on states dissevered, discordant, belligerent, on a land rent with civil feuds, or drenched, it may be, in fraternal blood, let their last feeble and lingering glance rather behold the gorgeous ensign of the Republic, now known and honored throughout the earth, still full high advanced, its arms and trophies streaming in their original luster, not a stripe erased or polluted, or a single star obscured, bearing for its motto no such miserable interrogatory as what is all this worth nor those other words of delusion and folly. Liberty first, and union afterwards, but everywhere, spread all over in characters of living light, blazing on all its ample folds, as they float over the sea and over the land, and in every wind under the whole heavens, that other sentiment, dear to every true American heart, liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. End of section 17 Recording by TJP.
1421.